Welcome to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. Americans have long viewed education as something that primarily happens in schools, and for good reason. Since the introduction of the common school, most formal education has taken place in schools. But that all changed when the COVID-19 pandemic shuttered school buildings in March 2020, forcing the locus of education to switch from the classroom to homes. Indeed, this past year and a half has given many parents a glimpse into the world of homeschooling. And judging by some early numbers, many parents liked what they saw. On this episode of The Report Card, I talk with Carrie McDonald about the rise of the homeschooling movement, how the pandemic has impacted non-traditional education, and how parents can stimulate their children's creativity and curiosity at home. Carrie is a senior education fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education, an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, and the author of Unschooled, Raising Curious, Well-Educated Children Outside the Conventional Classroom. Carrie, welcome to the report card. Oh, it's great to be with you, Nat. Thanks for having me. Carrie, there's so many things to talk about in the realm of alternative ed or non-conventional ed, but I think a good place to start this discussion is with some background on the homeschooling movement and how you got involved in it. So to kick us off, can you give us a two-minute overview of the origins of homeschooling in the U.S. and maybe talk a little bit about how your interest in the topic developed? Yeah, so the modern homeschooling movement really began in earnest in the late 1960s and early 1970s, driven primarily by uh, the political left. When we think about kind of the hippie communes and families, you know, pushing against institutionalized learning for their kids. Uh, And so that's really where the modern homeschooling movement began. It quickly accelerated through the political right uh, and particularly evangelical Christians throughout the 1980s, where we saw the most growth in homeschooling numbers at that point. Homeschooling became legally recognized in all 50 states by the mid-1990s, and it's seen tremendous growth uh, over the past two decades of the 21st century, even before the pandemic. So the most recent federal data prior to the pandemic showed that we had just under 2 million U.S. homeschoolers, and homeschooling was becoming increasingly reflective of the overall American population demographically, geographically, socioeconomically, ideologically ideologically and so on. Uh, But over the past 18 months, homeschooling has just skyrocketed. So according to the U.S. Census Bureau data, uh, homeschooling doubled in 2020 alone uh, and tripled really from that pre-pandemic level from 2016. So that now we have more than 5 million U.S. K-12 students being homeschooled, which is over 11% of the overall US K to 12 school age population. And I think one of the most interesting data points from the Census Bureau data uh, found that the biggest driver for the homeschooling growth in 2020 with school shutdowns and the pandemic response was black homeschooling families. They had a five fold increase in the homeschooling population in 2020 and are now overrepresented in the homeschooling population compared to the representation in the general American public school population. Yeah, so that's interesting. I know that when I think about homeschooling, I have this sort of view of demographics, you know, lodged in the same past you're talking about. 
I usually think of either sort of religious conservative folks or leftist sort of hippie folks. And the middle doesn't sort of fill that demographic that much. But this is a major shift that you're talking about in the demographics here. Would you say that for the most part, the population of homeschooling families mirrors that of the public? Or are there still some uh, particular areas where it's strongest? I would say that I don't think it's a major shift in the demographics of the homeschooling population. Already pre-pandemic, the homeschooling population was reflective of the U.S. population. The number one reason that parents indicated, according to federal data in 2016, of why they chose homeschooling was concern about the environment of other schools, including safety, drugs, and negative peer pressure. That was followed by a quest for academic excellence. So the sort of stereotype of homeschoolers uh, as being religiously motivated, again, that might have been true back in the 1980s, but hasn't been true for quite some time in the 21st century. And, and what we've seen over the past year, certainly, is that now homeschooling is really widespread in terms of its uh, reflection of the overall American population. In fact, even more so when we think about minority students as well. Prior to the pandemic, um, Black homeschoolers were a little bit underrepresented in the homeschool population. So that's now been remedied. But they had equal representation, again, according to that federal data in terms of Hispanic homeschoolers, Asian homeschoolers, and so on. So, Carrie, I'm going to I'm going to venture what may be a controversial statement here, but I'm going to guess that homeschooling isn't necessarily easy and that it takes a lot of effort for the families to set up uh, homeschooling and to get sort of the requisite plans and so forth together to execute it. Well, it seems like it's going to take work, time and know how. So the natural question is, how do families get up to speed on an approach to homeschooling? especially given the expansion of homeschooling that you've been talking about, you know, doubling since 2016. Yeah, you know, I would say homeschooling is really an umbrella term to define schooling alternatives. In many ways, it's a legal mechanism to bypass restrictive compulsory schooling statutes. And it's increasingly encompassing all kinds of uh, education innovation. And we've seen a lot of that really occur or accelerate over the past year. We think about these pandemic pods that uh, came on the scene in the summer of 2020 as parents realized that schools would stay shuttered for the academic year and that they wanted their kids to have small group interaction safely and securely. And so families got together and either took turns facilitating a curriculum or in many cases hired an educator. Well, that is sort of a modern twist on the time-honored notion of homeschool co-ops where uh, families would gather together and take turns facilitating a curriculum or increasingly hire uh, educators and mentors to do that. And also prior to the pandemic, we saw the growth of the micro-school movement, which was essentially these pandemic pods, home-based, multi-age, networks of you know, education innovation, sort of these one-room schoolhouse models that were really gaining a lot of traction and have continued to do that. So, you know, homeschooling, again, is really, I think, this mechanism to inspire education innovation, to encourage education entrepreneurship, so that the idea that, you know, you have a parent kind of sitting around a kitchen table uh, teaching from a textbook, I'm not sure that was ever really true, but it's certainly not been true over the past decade or two. And uh, increasingly, you know, homeschoolers take advantage of 
all kinds of programming, including five day a week programming at various self-directed learning centers, homeschool resource centers, and increasingly these education startups. And I can talk a little bit more about that, just the proliferation of a lot of these, uh, you know, innovative learning models that have really uh, sprouted over the past year. So you're talking about a lot of different sort of instantiations of what homeschooling is. So maybe we should spend a minute just sort of pinning down terms. When you define homeschooling, that includes everything from maybe pandemic pods to institutions where kids can draw on them five days a week to, you know, sort of the stereotypical homeschooling that people might have in their imagination. What's the definition for homeschooling? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really the locus of control of education shifting from the state to the family. And so in the case of homeschooling, it's parents registering uh, as homeschoolers in their state if they're in a state that requires that kind of registration. Um, And they're withdrawing their children from a conventional school, either a public or private school, uh, or not enrolling them in the beginning, you know, from the early ages. So they're really opting out of government schooling. Carrie, what are some of the things that are the biggest burdens that they have to pick up to start their kids on a homeschooling journey that can really work in the long haul? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the easy thing is to send your kid to an assigned district school. You know, it's sort of... uh, Uh, the mandatory school assignment. You don't have to think too much of it. So whenever families are deciding to opt out of that local district school, whether it's for homeschooling or any kind of private education, they have to do their research and think about what is the best educational fit for their kids. What are the resources available to them? What kinds of, you know, learning styles uh, and teaching styles are appropriate for their kids. And so there is a little bit of that legwork, but I don't think it's any different uh, with families choosing homeschooling as it would be if they chose any other kind of private education. Well, let me push back on that a little bit because I know some families, and of course I have a narrow frame of reference, but uh, where the parents do a lot of the legwork for the actual delivery of instruction. And some of these are in co-ops where parents still do a lot of the delivery of instruction. So how often do should we think about students that are engaged in homeschooling where it's primarily parent-directed and how much of this is, you know, not a lot uh, or, or the mainstay of the work for delivering instruction isn't on the parents? Yeah, so one of the key points that I make in my unschooled book is that Parents are the ones ultimately responsible to making sure that their children are highly educated, that their kids are highly literate and highly numerate. And I argue that that's true whether your kids are in school or homeschooled, that it's the responsibility of the parents ultimately to make sure that their kids are being educated uh, to the best way possible. And so sure, with homeschooling, there's all kinds of different approaches. I think increasingly because of the proliferation of so many uh, resources and curriculum tools and online learning um, resources for families that uh, the idea of a parent kind of being single-handedly responsible for teaching all of the curriculum uh, is no longer really the case. That in many cases, in most cases, I would argue with homeschooling today, uh, families are really the facilitators, the connectors, they're identifying various curriculum resources, they're researching online learning platforms, they're gathering with their in their communities that are increasingly diverse 
diverse and vibrant and finding mentors and peer groups and so on for their kids. Um, so there's all kinds of different ways of approaching homeschooling, but it's much more collaborative and integrative, I think, now than it ever has been. And when we think about homeschooling, I'm sure that most listeners are probably tempted to think, oh, well, this is easier in first and second and third grade. But in high school, well, that's a whole different matter. Is that a fair characterization or is that missing the point? Uh, so the uh, person who wrote the foreword to my unschooled book is Boston College psychology professor Peter Gray. He's written a lot about alternatives to school and self-directed education. And he and his colleague Gina Riley did a survey of grown unschoolers. And they found that for the most part, most of those uh, students who learned without schooling throughout their elementary and secondary years took community college classes during their teenage years. And in many cases, this is, you know, a brilliant decision for homeschooling families and, and sort of a best kept secret that I wish more families knew about where you can be a dual enrollment student in your teenage years, you know, sort of acting as a homeschooler, but taking a full suite of community college classes. In many cases, then at 18, homeschoolers are graduating with an associate's degree while their same age peers are getting a high school diploma. And then they're able to transfer all of those credits into a four-year institution, potentially even coming in as a sophomore or a junior and saving quite a bit of money uh, on that hefty tuition for college. So, you know, this is something that I think homeschoolers have known for quite a while, and I think more families are beginning to discover. You also see um, increasingly programs for homeschoolers, remote learning programs for homeschoolers that are doing this as well. I think, for example, of ASU uh, Prep Digital, Arizona State University Prep Digital, which is a really innovative program. They run K to 12, but for the high school years, uh, you can be taking concurrent classes uh, through Arizona State and be able to transfer that to any four-year university that will accept those credits. So uh, just, I think there's a lot of room for growth there. And I think we'll continue to see, you know, uh, just some really great opportunities for students in those high school years to start accumulating college credits early. So we've had uh, an experience as a nation, perhaps uninvited, with this sort of remote schooling during pandemic closures. And so I can see some folks equating, well, homeschooling through remote learning is sort of like pandemic closures remote schooling. And we've also seen that that remote schooling during the pandemic specifically has been a rough ride. Is that a fair comparison or is it a false equivalence? You know, I think one of the real uh, tragedies of the past year has been families maybe seeing remote learning that they're, that's occurring through their district school uh, as being subpar and then potentially thinking that all remote learning therefore must be subpar. And I think that that couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, Zoom district schooling was a disaster for many children, many educators, but it's quite a bit different than many of these private providers that have been creating exceptional online learning platforms for years that were designed to be high quality learning online learning platforms that have educators who uh, you know, were hired in because they valued that platform. That's a very different experience for students than this uh, pandemic Zoom schooling through their local school district that, again, was you know, really problematic for so many students. 
Okay, so back in 2019, your book Unschooled was published, and I understand that it sort of found its way back into the limelight amid the pandemic. Now, this is an education podcast, so usually the folks who come on the show are talking about schooling. So I need a little bit of an introduction. What is unschooling? Yeah, so Unschooled was published in the spring of 2019. It gained quite a bit of renewed interest and popularity uh, in 2020 and 2021 as families not only began to think about how they could live and learn alongside their kids in the early days of the school shutdowns, but I think really over the past year, um, more seriously considering homeschooling and realizing that homeschooling, you know, might not have that sort of stereotypical image that may have been in their mind, that in fact, it's uh, really a mechanism for ultimate freedom and flexibility in education. Uh, so, so that's been exciting. Yeah, you know, I define unschooling in the book as really disentangling education from schooling and recognizing that schooling is one way to be educated, but it's not the only way, and I argue in the book, may not be the most preferable way given the realities of the 21st century and the innovation era. You know, we have a compulsory model of conventional schooling that dates back to the 19th century that's really um, has its roots in sort of this industrial prototype for learning. And it's really mismatched to the needs of the innovation era where human intelligence has to continually compete with and outshine artificial intelligence. And yet we have a dominant school system that continues to focus on obedience, conformity, and compliance when what we really need is creativity, curiosity, entrepreneurship, and human ingenuity. So is homeschooling and unschooling more or less synonymous then? Well, I, I think it can be. Unschooling really focuses more on a self-directed approach uh, to learning, uh, whereas you could imagine that there are homeschooling. I mean, think about the homeschooling that everybody was sort of thrust into the pandemic homeschooling in the spring of 2020. That was just replicating school at home. All that changed was the location of schooling from a classroom to a home. Uh, what I argue uh, in the unschooled book is that unschooling says, let's really challenge the whole uh, idea of schooling as the best way to be educated. And let's instead uh, focus on, you know, passion-driven learning, community-based education, really um, using the robust resources around us to facilitate learning outside of a coercive classroom. Okay, so I want to go into a little bit of a, a deeper dive for the education policy and, and, and sort of pedagogy nerds listening. And I'm wondering how the, the concept of unschooling compares with the concept of, of de-schooling, which, you know, sort of dates earlier back to the 70s and popularized by Ivan Illich. Are those roughly the same things as well? Well, I think, um, you know, certainly you see Ivan Illich's book, De-Schooling Society, you know, he, he did talk a lot about these ideas of disentangling education from schooling. Really interestingly, he talks about learning webs and uh, having a much more interconnected education system that would sort of encourage lifelong teaching and learning. And it's really fascinating to read that book today um, when he wrote it pre-internet, and of course now so much more digitally enabled education that really in many ways 
captures his vision of these interconnected learning webs. And so I think we're continuing, you know, to see the fruits of technology in terms of uh, facilitating education uh, and lifelong learning. I think in the more modern sense of the term de-schooling, that, that would really involve families whose kids have been in school for a while and then pulling their kids out and recognizing that they may want to take some time to de-school, to sort of become deconditioned. You know, there's a lot that happens when we uh, focus education on schooling. It's something that happens to us. We become passive learners. We sort of lose touch with a lot of those natural drives for learning that we see so clearly in young children, for example. Uh, so de-schooling is just this period of time to really decompress and uh, reconnect with those uh, natural drives for learning and discovery. Okay, so let's talk about a couple of things again to just disentangle some things that might sound similar. So I think some listeners could say, well, it sounds like you're describing just self-directed learning, right? And uh, a lot of teachers in traditional schools have tried to incorporate self-directed learning in their classrooms for years. They want students to be able to pick their own books or develop their own assignments or portfolios that determine sort of what they uh, read and work on, for instance. So how similar is self-directed learning to uh, unschooling? And does unschooling necessarily have to happen outside of schools? So I think the primary distinction is, is the learning coercive? So I would argue that a lot of what happens in schools when when teachers say that they're facilitating self-directed learning is really more self-paced. Uh, or maybe there's some controlled choice happening, but it's not really self-directed because at the end of the day, there's some expectations that the the teacher has for what should be uh, submitted and and in what ways that learning those learning goals should be achieved. So I think self-directed learning is really much more focused on centering education within the student, within the learner. And one of the examples that I like to give uh, from my unschooled book involves my older daughter who um, became really interested in Korean language and culture. So she was really passionate about martial arts and took martial arts classes at a local studio several times a week. And then through that experience, wanted to know more about Korean language and culture and history. So she started taking Korean language classes initially through Duolingo.com, which is a free online language learning uh, platform, but wanted more than that. And so I was able to find her through community uh, message boards, a uh, local South Korean, native South Korean tutor who has met with her for several several times a week for several years now, and she's well on her way to being fluent in Korean. That's an example of self-directed education where this was being driven by her as the learner, and I as the parent or the educator am able to simply facilitate that learning by connecting her to available resources. I think the other key piece with self-directed education is the freedom of exit, right? The freedom to quit so that if you are not no longer, you know, excited about, for example, Korean language, uh, that you have the ability to exit away or leave that particular program. Um, These are things that just simply don't happen within our compulsory framework of education. So, you know, that's a compelling example. And I can think that a lot of parents are saying, you know, that's what I want for my kid, my kid to pursue what they want to know and learn deeply, have some deep learning about it, that they can continue to follow uh, you know, not just within the context of a of a school year. 
I can also see a lot of people saying, wow, well, that's great to go deep, but how do you make sure that students in an unschooled environment cover the full range of things that they're going to need later on? So, you know, in in, uh, traditional public schools, we have curriculum maps, and it's carefully constructed to make sure that we have the breadth that, you know, most people think is uh, a reasonable curriculum. So... I'm going to guess that you can kind of see that as problematic, but how do parents and students ensure that at the end of the day, they kind of meet some minimum curricular coverage if they're unschooling? Yeah, I mean, I would argue that the the model really shouldn't be our nation's public school system that's failing so many kids. So they may have these wonderful curriculum frameworks, but so many kids are failing to meet that or certainly not performing at proficient levels. So start by really looking at that uh, before attacking the families that are choosing a private option and opting out of that kind of government oversight of education. Um, With homeschoolers, you know, the the data is fairly clear. I would say the most recent research that's come out about homeschooling outcomes in terms of academic performance is a recent literature review by Lindsay Burke at the Heritage Foundation, where she found positive of academic outcomes of homeschooled students compared to their schooled peers. Interestingly enough, Daniel Hamlin, a professor at the University of Oklahoma, has done a lot of research on homeschoolers as well. He found that homeschoolers have much higher rates of what he calls cultural capital than their schooled peers. And and, and he identifies the fact that homeschoolers are much more likely than their conventionally schooled peers to go to the library more frequently, to go to bookstores, museums, cultural events, musical events, historical sites, zoos, and so on. Uh, much more likely to do that as a homeschooler than as a student that is in a public school. And so again, I think you know the, the model there is, uh, is, is to look to homeschoolers and what they're doing right uh, and clearly able to provide their kids with a phenomenal education outside of a conventional classroom. So I'll push further on that. So I take your point, and and I think there's a lot of positive outcomes that you can see for uh, homeschooling across across a number of years. However, for people who are thinking, well, maybe homeschooling is or is not for me, how do most homeschoolers sort of navigate that sort of question of how do I make sure that my kid has enough curriculum coverage, not to satisfy some extraneous standard, but for parents to be comfortable that they're giving their kids a breadth of experiences that'll prepare them for uh, later life. Yeah, I mean, there's just so many resources, again, available to homeschoolers. I think homeschoolers always took advantage of these uh, external curriculum resources, and now those are even more accessible, in many cases free, available online for families. Um, you know, most homeschoolers, and, and the advice I give for prospective homeschoolers is to connect with your local homeschooling communities, find local Facebook groups for homeschoolers in your area. These groups have seen tremendous growth over the past year with prospective homeschooling families. And through those networks, which are often, you know, very welcoming and embracing of newcomers, you can find a whole host of, um, you know, different insights on various curriculum resources. What is the kind of approach that, that you care about as a family? Do you want a Montessori approach to education? Do you want a classical approach to education? Do you want more of a self-directed and structured approach to education? And then there's so many resources available for that as well. Some homeschooling families do decide to do annual standardized testing and they typically do quite well compared to school peers if they want to see that their kids are performing against some kind of, uh, you know, conventional benchmark. So there's just numerous resources for today's homeschooling families. 
So let's talk about laws around un- unschooling that may make it complicated. I mean, there's compulsory attendance laws, and there's also, in different states, different requirements for homeschoolers to sort of interface with the school system. So is unschooling legal? And where are the legal requirements that uh, require parents pursuing it to, um, you know, jump through some hoops or lay down some, some plans for the government? Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, homeschooling is legal in all 50 states, has been since the 1990s, and unschooling is one educational approach to homeschooling, and so therefore it is also uh, legal in all 50 states, and it's, you know, families approach it differently. Um, Some states don't require any registration or uh, letter of intent to homeschool, homeschool. Other states have more requirements, including some states that require standardized testing for homeschoolers. And so, you know, regardless of the, the different approach that a homeschooler will take, they'll comply with those state regulations. Uh, and, you know, they're typically very adaptable to, you know, these various educational approaches. I'll also say again, you know, one of the key features of my unschool book is I traveled around the country and interviewed all kinds of educators who were launching these self-directed learning centers. So a lot of unschooling, you know, isn't, uh, and homeschooling more generally, isn't home-based. You know, if you talk to most homeschoolers, they'll tell you they spend more of their time outside of their home than inside of their home. And in many cases, that involves participation in these self-directed learning centers or homeschool resource centers, um, some of which, you know, a homeschooler could go to five days a week. It's truly a schooling alternative, but they're registered as a homeschooler and they're able to to then bypass those compulsory schooling statutes and able to have that true freedom and flexibility uh, with education. And one of the most surprising things that I found in writing the book was that most of the educators who were launching these self-directed learning centers and homeschool programs were former public school teachers who became really disillusioned by what they were seeing in a conventional classroom and wanted to build something better and different. Are there any estimates on the number of parents who are specifically engaged in unschooling? And I I just wonder, again, whether the unschooling crowd specifically looks roughly the same as the traditional homeschooling crowd. Yeah, it's hard to get um, accurate numbers, but according to the 2016 Federal Department of Education data, uh, there was some wording in there about, you know, do you follow an unstructured approach to homeschooling? And so if we use that as a proxy, that's about 20% of the current homeschool population. So not a small amount, given the the rises in the homeschooling population that you, you cited earlier in the podcast. No, and, and it had grown um, over that previous decade as well. I think it, it, it almost doubled. Let me ask you about the future for homeschooling numbers. I mean, as long as the pandemic is here, I think that there's probably a weight on the scale for homeschooling for a lot of families. But I could also see that for any number of families, they say, well, we're returning back to pre-pandemic schooling, and now I'm interested in returning back to schools. If you had to make a forecast, what percentage or portion of the increase that we've seen over the past couple of years would you anticipate is going to going to stick post pandemic? Yeah, you know, Nat, I, last spring, I would have expected this bump in homeschooling numbers in 2020 to fall as schools reopen for full time in person learning now. Uh, that's simply not the case. In fact, I just 
wrote, recently wrote an article citing data out of both Texas and Virginia where homeschooling advocates there are seeing even more demand uh, in homeschooling now than they did last summer. In Texas in particular, they had more phone calls, more inquiries and more emails than they did last summer, which was already record highs. So I don't see this slowing down. I think a couple of reasons. Uh, I think there's still concern over pandemic policies in schools. There's still lingering virus concerns that parents may have. But there's also a lot of families who may try, who may have tried homeschooling last year and actually liked it and said, gee, you know, I didn't realize uh, how joyful learning could be and my kids are happier and thriving and so we'll continue. And from that, there creates the sort of network effect that now there's more people People doing it, it becomes more socially acceptable, there's more resources available to families. And I mentioned earlier just the proliferation of education entrepreneurship. My recent article at Forbes.com uh, highlights three uh, recent uh, entrepreneurship models, including a startup where I'm based in Boston called KaiPod Learning that really seized on these learning pods uh, to allow students to gather in commercial storefront spaces, multi-age groups with whatever curriculum or online learning program they prefer, public or private, um, but be able to work together in uh, peer groups with adult mentors and daily enrichment activities. Uh, so there's more and more of these incredibly innovative community-based learning models that are sprouting. And I think that's going to continue uh, to encourage families to look beyond that assigned district school at how else their kids could be learning. Okay, so I want to advocate for the devil here for a second and uh, bring up two of the biggest critiques that I usually hear when uh, I'm talking with folks and homeschooling comes up. So the first one that I also think would apply to unschooling is, hey, you know, if you let your kids homeschool for an extended period of time, they're going to miss out on a lot of the socialization that normally happens at school. How do you respond to that line of critique? Yeah, well, I just mentioned Daniel Hamlin's research at the University of Oklahoma, basically showing that homeschoolers are much better socialized uh, than their school peers, much more immersed in their communities and going to various cultural events, libraries, bookstores, museums, and so on uh, than their schooled peers. You know, I think if we're really looking at socialization, you know, homeschoolers are the ones really embedded in the people, places, and things around them with sort of this authentic socialization that occurs by being a member of a community, as opposed to the kind of forced socialization we see in conventional schools, where kids go to the same building every day with the same static handful of teachers and the same age segregated group of students doing the same standardized curriculum. Uh, you know, I would say that that is more of a concern and, and, and less uh, sort of authentic socialization, less sort of uh, helping people to, to be uh, you know, thriving individuals in a larger community. And that's what homeschoolers have been able to do is really be in that community and engaging with people of all ages and finding mentors and different peer groups and interacting, uh, you know, with a whole diverse assortment of community members. Okay, so the, the second critique that I often hear is, hey, a lot of parents, you know, maybe they're going to have the necessary content knowledge and background to teach you know, reading and math in third grade, these sorts of things, sure. But once they get into algebra or some of these more complicated uh, subjects in high school, 
I don't think that parents necessarily have the wherewithal, and certainly not the expertise that teachers have, to provide their students with guidance. How do you respond to that line of critique? Well, Nat, I don't know Korean language. Uh, I mentioned earlier my daughter's interest in Korean language. I don't know Korean. No one that I know knows Korean. Um, but I was, as a parent and as, an, as a facilitator of my child's education, able to connect her with the resources that uh, enable her to learn Korean. And that's exactly the way it's always been with homeschoolers. In fact, it's much easier to facilitate that now with the robust uh, and diverse assortment of online learning resources that enable learners of all ages and in particular homeschooled students to develop expertise in the content that they need. So looking forward for homeschooling, for particularly for advocates of homeschooling, what are the next frontiers, the next things to work on to um, maintain or build a, a robust homeschooling environment in the states? Yeah, I mean, I think we have to continue to push back against any calls for increased government regulation of homeschooling. Uh, we need to lower regulation for a lot of these alternatives to school, these startups that I mentioned that are creating innovative learning models. We need to get the government out of the way and let these entrepreneurs build these exciting new models. You know, there's so much choice and variety and innovation in other sectors and other areas of our life. And yet education has remained largely static and for the most part government controlled. So the more that we can uh, loosen the grip of government on education, the more innovation, entrepreneurship uh, will flourish. Carrie McDonald, thanks for coming on the report card to talk to us about homeschooling and unschooling. Thanks for having me, Nat. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Report Card with Nat Malkus, and special thanks to our guest, Carrie McDonald. We'll include a link to Carrie's book, Unschooled, in the show notes. As always, I want to thank the producers that make this show possible. That's Matt Rice and Wesley Armstrong. Remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts. And while you're there, take a minute to leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. As always, you can send comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's it for this episode. I'm Nat Malcolm.